quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and a warm welcome to First Move. I'm Christina McFarlane in for Julia Chatterley. Just ahead on today's show, Hawaii in mourning. 55 people now confirmed dead as the Maui wildfire disaster worsens. Search and rescue efforts still underway with most of the town of Lahaina destroyed. None of the fires on Maui have been completely contained. Complete coverage just ahead. Plus, Niger on edge. West African leaders debate joint military action to restore order after the last after last month's coup. They say a standby military force will be activated. Fears about the health of Niger's ousted president are on the rise as well. And in sport, Sweden and Spain are heading to the Women's World Cup semi-finals. The Netherlands and Japan eliminated on Friday and more quarterfinal action on tap this weekend. The latest from Australia later this hour. And on global markets, U.S. futures lower. New inflation data showing U.S. wholesale prices coming in a bit hotter than expected. European shares falling by more than 1%. But encouraging news from the U.K., where GDP grew unexpectedly in the second quarter. Meanwhile, in Asia, a sizable drop for Chinese stocks. The Chinese composite falling more than 2% on uh, fresh concerns over the country's real estate sector. The property developer uh, Country Garden warning of more than a seven and a half billion dollar loss in the first half of the year. More on that later in the show. But first, at least 55 people are now known to have lost their lives in the devastating wildfires on the Hawaiian island of Maui. The state's governor is warning that the number is expected to rise as searchers sift through burnt out homes and businesses. Thousands of people have been forced out of their homes and many people on the island remain without power. A survivor described the dire situation. Everyone's lost their job, they've lost their house, they've lost their family. I think there's gonna be hundreds of people dead and I don't say that as any conspiracy theory. I just look at how fast it moved and I know how people around here, we're all in slippers. You know, it happens, what happens? How are you gonna get out that fast? It's all wooden houses super close together in that neighborhood. You've probably been here on vacation. If there's a way you can help, it's your turn. Help here because it's needed. Every single home in Lahaina is gone. It's like I said before, it's apocalyptic. Well, President Biden has issued a federal disaster declaration. Listen. Available federal assets on the island, including the U.S. Coast Guard, the Navy Third Fleet, and the U.S. Army to assist local emergency response crews along with the Hawaiian National Guard. We're working as quickly as possible to fight these fires and evacuate residents and tourists. In the meantime, our prayers with the people of Hawaii, but not just our prayers. Every asset we have will be available to them, and we've seen they've seen their homes, their business destroyed, and some have lost loved ones, and it's not over yet. Our Bill Weir got a first-hand look at what's become of the historic town of Lahaina. Take a look. This is the historic banyan tree, a 150-year-old majestic tree at the center of Lahaina town. It looks like it may have survived. It needs water desperately. 
uh, to survive right now. But for the locals who are coming down and looking at the damage, this is such a sign of hope that maybe their iconic tree will have lived when, when so much else is gone here. But the history can never be replaced. Right here, this is the first hotel in Hawaii, the Pioneer Hotel, Pioneer Theater. It's completely gone. Right over here was the library. It's just now a stone shell of scorched blocks. Around Front Street there, Fleetwood's, Mick Fleetwood of, uh, of the band Fleetwood Mac, his place is gutted out with flames. It's just unrecognizable. One of the most charming, beloved port cities anywhere in the world is just scorched like a bomb went off. It's just devastating. Well, CNN meteorologist Derek Van Dam is joining us now. And Derek, we know that a lot of these wildfires were being fanned by Hurricane Dora. Uh, have conditions changed much overnight? What are search and rescue teams facing right now? Yeah, good question, because conditions on the ground in terms of the fire behavior have vastly improved. So that's good news, right? A little sliver of hope. And let me show you how we've confirmed this. This is fire detection hotspots. This is at the peak of the wildfire that was occurring in the upcountry portion of Maui and also in Lahaina over the western sections of the island. Now let's go to the latest satellite imagery of these hotspot detections. You see how they disappear? That is because the wildfires have largely been extinguished. Uh, according to officials, there's still an 80% containment of the Lahaina fire. Uh, we'll monitor that as we get the sunrise over the Hawaiian Islands in the next couple of hours. Perhaps we will increase that to a 90 to 100% containment, maybe potentially still some flare-ups. But uh, to be frank and to be quite honest, now the Lahana fire actually reached the ocean, ran out of uh, terrain to actually scorch. I mean, that's basically what happened. So as Christina aptly mentioned, it was Hurricane Dora's wind in combination with this high-pressure system that brought uh, this powerful, powerful erratic wind behavior and fire behavior across the island of Maui. Interestingly enough, this is a side note, kind of unrelated, but uh, Hurricane Dora about to cross the international dateline. So once it does so, it will actually no longer be considered a hurricane. It's actually going to become a typhoon because these are region-specific storms. Look at the winds over the next 36 hours. At the moment, 20 to 30 kilometers per hour, but they could pick up throughout the course of the weekend, so something to consider. And when we have that northeasterly wind, this is known as the trade winds, they come up and over the mountain ranges near Maui, the Hawaiian Islands. It's the windward sides, the eastern-facing slopes that will see the majority of the rain on the leeward side. This is the area that gets that downsloping wind. We actually get the drying uh, effect from that process. And unfortunately, we believe that the rainfall that is in this outlook, very isolated in nature, but will generally be located on the eastern facing shoreline. So that won't bring any relief to Lahaina if there are indeed still some hot spots or embers that are burning. There's the rainfall forecast you can see over the higher elevations and the eastern sections of the island. Now, it's really interesting to note 80% of the Hawaiian Islands abnormally dry, but let's focus right into Maui County because we've seen the severe drought index expand over 10% since this time last week. So that just shows you the bone dry conditions that have been developing with an ongoing drought there. And, you know, there's a lot of science-backed attribution to tie this in with our changing climate. And this is really interesting. Coming right off of the Hawaii.gov website, 90% of Hawaii has seen less rainfall 
than it did a century ago. So really, Christina, the fingerprints of climate change written all over the story, scientists will be looking into this to directly attribute it to it. Yeah, it's, it's a really important point, Derek. And as you say from all your diagrams there, we can see how exposed these islands are. Let's hope for mm. some relief uh, for those citizens soon. Derek Van Dam, thank you. Well, Hawaiians are struggling to digest the scale of the catastrophe. Even those who managed to escape the fire say they've, they've uh, seen their lives destroyed. Alan Vu from Lahaina lost his house and the restaurant where he works in the fire. And this is what he told CNN earlier today. Take a listen. We didn't expect the fire to go through the town this quick. I was uh, with my general manager, Jerrica, in our restaurant, thinking that if the possibility of power coming back, we can salvage our products and, 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 and our restaurant. We were just getting some work done. I left the, uh, I left the bar restaurant around 3 p.m. with my, my housemates. They were, they were with me the whole time. Um, and as we were driving the town, um, we could we could see that that there's there's smoke coming our way. Uh, we drove down on Front Street towards our house, which is southbound. During that time, there was already evacuation with bumper to bumper traffic going northbound on Front Street, going up to the Civic Center. Um, but when we got to our place, we continued to look up at the smoke, and it, it was just you know within within minutes we could see the smoke brush brush um i would say a half a mile through the town um footages that i shared with some of your staff members yeah that, that the fire went through the town really quick and and when we saw that it, it was it was time to warn everyone in our neighborhood to 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 get out well, if you would like information on how to help those impacted by the hawaii wildfires please go to cnn.com impact now, in Ukraine, explosions have shaken Kyiv after authorities declared a nationwide air alert. The city's mayor says missile fragments hit a children's hospital, but no one was hurt. Meanwhile, a UN humanitarian official is saying she's appalled by a Russian strike on Zaporizhia on Thursday. Kyiv says a hotel was hit uh, and was also the site of a children's day camp. Well, our Nick Payton Walsh is joining us live now from close to that region in Ukraine. And Nick, I know that you and your team were actually just down the road when this missile attack happened in Zaporizhia on this hotel. Can you tell us about the, the, the type of people that were staying there? We're hearing reports, obviously, of a lot of children uh, being resident. Yeah, uh, startling. Each day we hear these Russian missile attacks on civilian targets and sometimes they do sort of get glossed over but the details on, on this one are utterly shocking. One dead and over a dozen injured certainly but that in itself is miraculous. This is the Reichardt's Hotel complex not far uh, from where we've spent some time. In fact we went to the hotel ourselves uh, not long ago and saw multiple families in its interior swimming pool but also in the car park outside a smaller swimming pool for children and climbing frames a children's park there now it's into the car park outside near that children's play area that the first Iskander missile slammed at about 7:20 in the evening uh, and then another one followed a matter of seconds later now the fact that the death toll and the number of injured is so comparatively low no consolation for the families though it's because the children's play camp ended an hour earlier now given 
that the Russians piled two military-grade ballistic missiles into that hotel. You can't really presume that they knew the children would have left by then. And so the fact this toll is comparatively low, startling. And think about this too. After that hotel was attacked, the Russian official came forward and said that all hotels in Zaporizhia are now targets because uh, they believe that they're full of Ukrainian soldiers. That's simply not the case. So another sign here with particularly graphic detail, albeit a lower death toll, of exactly what sort of targets Russia are willing to hit twice in a matter of minutes with ballistic missiles, Christina. Yeah, Russia clearly trying to justify uh, their actions. And we also know, uh, Nick, in the past 24 hours that the capital, Kiev, has been targeted again uh, with reports of a downed missile uh, there. And this, as the counteroffensive continues where you are on the front lines, talk to us about these small incremental gains we're hearing so often about with Ukrainian troops. I mean, they are small, but how vital are they at this point? Yeah, they're very small and sometimes they are indeed reversed, but there does appear to be some fairly important progress happening to the south of Orekhiv. That's the western part of the southern front lines where uh, Ukraine is trying to push towards the Azov Sea and cut Crimea off from the rest of occupied Ukraine and the Russian mainland. Now, they do appear, according to social media video we've seen, to have got to the outskirts of Robotinia. That's something we heard about a few days ago, but this is sort of a growing evidence. Often it appears on a time lag that that indeed is occurring. Robotinia is important because it's been essentially the Russian stronghold. They've poured reinforcements into it, paratroopers, they've heavily defended it. And the ultimate question really is whether Ukraine is conducting some kind of manoeuvre around that village and beginning uh, to in fact encircle it and move on, or if they're fighting a dense war of attrition around it. But most importantly, if there are any Russian defences at further depth, we know there are some, but much of the debate has been whether Russia's defensive line is really intense at the start because they intend to hold that and not budge, and then gets weaker the further back you push. We'll learn that possibly in the weeks ahead, but Ukrainians under great criticism from Western analysts, some on the other side of the planet, about how slow their counteroffensive is going, they would point to gains like this that they say are strategic and potentially may yield greater Russian weakness if it indeed is this place, Robotina, and those around it that the Russians are throwing all their cards at the moment, Christina. Nick Paymosh, we appreciate your reporting there live from Dnipro. Thanks, Nick. Now, Ecuador's president has declared a state of emergency in three days of national mourning after the assassination of a presidential candidate Wednesday. Six suspects, all Colombians, have been arrested in connection with the killing that took place after a campaign rally in the capital, Quito. The attack being blamed on organized crime. The candidate was an anti-corruption crusader. Well, Rafael Romu is joining us now live from Quito. And Rafael, just bring us up to date on what you're hearing on these latest efforts to find those responsible. We're hearing about six arrests and also the mood in the country today following this shocking attack. I mean, coming just days ahead of the national election there. That's right, Christina. Well, there's a lot of indignation, anger, outrage here in Ecuador. And even before the assassination of Fernando Villavicencio, Interior Minister Juan Zapata had already announced that 59,000 police would be deployed throughout the country. The original goal, of course, was to safeguard the upcoming presidential election to be held on August 20th. After the assassination, President Guillermo Lasso issued a decree to deploy the armed forces to strategic areas around the country to tighten security. 
President Lasso also announced Thursday that he has requested support from the U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigation to investigate the assassination. Lasso said the FBI accepted his request and the delegation was supposed to arrive Thursday evening. An FBI spokesperson confirmed that the FBI, through the legal attache office in Bogota, Colombia, is assisting their counterparts here in Ecuador, but declined to comment further due to the ongoing nature of the investigation. Cristina, Defense Minister Luis Lara is talking about these security measures in terms of war. He said Ecuador is facing a decisive battle to protect democracy, security and peace against the brutal threats of transnational crime, drug trafficking and terrorism. He also said that his country will give the Iron Fist treatment to what he called mercenaries and terrorists, even with all the measures that the government of President Lasso has taken, there are at least two presidential candidates who say the upcoming presidential debate and even the election itself should be postponed given the, given the situation. In spite of all this, Cristina, Diana Atamain, that's the top elections official here in Ecuador, announced Thursday that the election will be held as planned on August 20th. Now back to you. Yeah, that's important information. One, what, one does wonder how this has been affecting the political climate there. Uh, Rafael Remo, uh, live there from Quito, thank you. Now, West African leaders are ramping up the rhetoric against Niger's coup leaders. On Thursday, the president of the Ivory Coast called the coup a terrorist act and said Niger's neighbors could use military force to restore order. The regional bloc, ECOWAS, ordering the activation of a standby force to Niger to restore the elected president following last month's coup. But details of the plan, or when it might be implemented, remain unclear. Larry Madowo is uh, joining us now live for more on this. And Larry, what would be the mission of this standby force if it were put in place? And, and how inflammatory would that be seen by coup leaders uh, at, this, at this stage? The coup leaders have always maintained that they're ready for this, Christina. And uh, if ECOWAS were to, in fact, send in troops, it would be hugely destabilizing, not just for Niger, but for the wide region in the Sahel. Niger has been the safe neighborhood in this very dangerous part of the world that suffers from terrorism, extremism, um, a jihadist insurgency. That, that's why it's been the centerpiece of the West's security strategy in the Sahel. But this is a last option. It's an option of last resort. And what ECOWAS is signaling here is that they're still open to diplomacy, to solving the crisis diplomatically, but the military option is still available. It's a last resort, but it's not off the table. That's why you hear these statements from uh, President Alassane Ouattara of Côte d'Ivoire calling the detention of President Mohamed Bazoum a terrorist act. And he just came out and said it, in English no less, that if they cannot release President Bazoum, we should get in there and get them out. We do not condone coups, as ECOWAS President Ouattara said, and that's always been our position. He said Côte d'Ivoire would contribute between 850 and 1,100 soldiers to that joint ECOWAS force if it were to go into, um, into Niger. The African Union now also supporting that decision by ECOWAS. I want to read a section of this statement from the African Union Commission Chairperson Musa Faki Mahamat, who says, The chairperson calls on the military authorities to urgently halt the escalation of relations with the regional organization ECOWAS, including the secession of the continued sequestration of President Bazoum in worryingly poor conditions. Such treatment of a democratically elected president through a regular electoral process is unacceptable 
ECOWAS yesterday called for the support of the African Union and the UN, and they already have that strong statement of support from the African Union. So if they were to go ahead with this, the regional body is standing with this West African bloc. Christina. Well, we'll continue to watch this uh, story as uh, it evolves in the coming hours. Larry Madoa there live for us. Thanks, Larry. And straight ahead, cyber attacks remain a major security threat around the globe. Fresh reports of hackers targeting foreign embassies in Belarus. We'll get the latest right after this break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to First Move, where we are taking a closer look at the ongoing cybersecurity threats facing companies and governments around the globe. In Las Vegas this weekend, thousands of hackers are set to take part in a competition to help flag software vulnerabilities in artificial intelligence apps like ChatGPT. All this amid news that teenage hackers successfully broke into the computer systems of some of the world's biggest tech firms by exploiting vulnerable telecom and business supply chain infrastructure. Also, researchers from the ESET cybersecurity firm have uncovered a cyber plot targeting foreign embassies in Belarus. The firm says at least four countries have been targeted by a cyber espionage group using advanced techniques. Well, Tony Anscum, ESET's chief security evangelist, joins me now live from Las Vegas. Tony, great to have you with us. Uh, let's uh, begin with this serious cyber plot uh, that I mentioned they're targeting these embassies in Belarus because this is your work and it's important work. Uh, tell us about your findings and, and who who is behind these attacks. So our research team found that uh, a cyber group we've named Mustached Bouncer uh, actually used some of the Belarusian infrastructure, so the ISP infrastructure, to attack individuals, i.e. diplomats, and some of the embassies of two European nations, an African nation and an Asian nation. And, and, and how, why is this significant? As in, how did this, uh, how has this been impacting those embassies? Have you made them aware of, of the, your findings? Where, you know, what, what are, what's the recourse here for your, uh, for, for, the, for what you found? 
Well, in the instance of those particular victims, you know, we work with those victims to make the, make sure they're secure. But this is only our telemetry. I mean, there may be other victims of for, of this particular group, uh, which we don't know about. But by publishing our findings, of course, we make this a public issue. Uh, where other researchers and other cybersecurity companies protecting those other individuals uh, can then act upon. You know, during the course of this uh, war in Ukraine, we talk obviously more about the physical war than the cyber war because we're presented with numbers of dead every single day. But in your world, how has the, the nature of cyber warfare changed throughout the course of this war that you've been seeing? And is it possible to even say who has been winning that battle? Well, I think the winning, who's winning the battle is is an interesting one. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'd like to answer, try and answer that one. But there's certainly, I think, what this has brought is brought cyber warfare to the forefront. Yeah, so that we're actually seeing you know this in the news every day. It's not that the attacks weren't happening. There were attacks happening, but now we're actually, they're being reported on more more commonly. But what you are seeing is more attacks on critical infrastructure and more destructive attacks as well. I mean, at the start of the conflict, we uncovered a number of data wiping attacks, which are destructive. And then along with uh, cyber security teams in Ukraine, we thwarted an attack against critical infrastructure against the power grid. But uh, the, Tony, the nature of cyber warfare is changing, but the advent of AI, of course, is making this a lot more uh, threatening. And as we mentioned there, you know, there are there are teenagers now who are able to kind of uh, to, to to break into uh, specific intelligence here. I mean, this is not just an issue for nations. Uh, I mean, how do you control it? How do you try and get a, a handle and stay ahead of what is happening? Well, it, it's tough, and AI is in its infancy as well. So we're only seeing that that evolve at the moment. And and some of the things that are being talked about, like uh, large language modules, so the the chat GPTs and such like, um, this truly has been released early, in my opinion. Um, so I think there's a lot more that we're going to see happen over the next one or two years, and a lot more functionality and a lot more um, abuse, unfortunately, of mm. of the tools. Um, but I think coming back to this attack in Belarus, I think what was interesting was actually this was using uh, legal interception devices. So this was using devices that are actually placed at an ISP uh, un by legally uh, un by the Belarusian government. Yeah, well, that is a, is a real concern. I think one of the countermeasures to all of this could be taking place where you are in Vegas this weekend with the, that um, event taking place where thousands of hackers are obviously engaged in trying to find the vulnerabilities in the cyber space. So that could be one, uh, could be one method by which we try and uh, get a handle on this. But uh, as to your, uh, your reporting and your research in Belarus, we really appreciate you coming on and giving us your thoughts on your findings, Tony. Thank you very much. My pleasure. All right, coming up on First Move, Chinese real estate giant Country Garden in big trouble. How this garden is losing its bloom. That's next. Hi, welcome back to First Move. Now, US stocks are up and running for the final time this week, a lower start to the trading day as new numbers show US wholesale prices 
inflation coming in a bit hotter than expected last month. All the major averages are currently on track for a losing week. The S&P and Nasdaq fell last week as well. Uh, the pullback coming as economists debate whether the Fed has truly hiked interest rates for the final time this tightening cycle and fresh concerns over China's embattled real estate sector. Property giant Country Garden warning it could see a loss of up to $7.6 billion for the first half of this year. Shares of the company dropping to a low, a record low in Hong Kong. Mark Stewart has the details for us. China's economy is struggling. Young people are having a tough time finding a job. Prices of everyday items are falling because there isn't enough demand and exports are seeing a slump. Yet there's another economic component reflected in these economic woes, the real estate industry. In the past, the property sector was a money-making machine, accounting for as much as 30% of China's GDP. But during the pandemic, home ownership became less enticing. The job market was bruised, and that contributed to a shift. Government regulations also added some challenges. In fact, if you look at the data, new home sales by China's 100 biggest developers saw a 33% decrease in July from a year ago. That's the steepest monthly decline since July 2022, according to recent stats. So what happened? Developers loaded up on debt, the latest to face trouble, a company named Country Garden. According to reports by Reuters and Chinese media, it missed interest payments on two U.S. dollar-dominated bonds. It brings back memories of another company, Evergrande. It collapsed two years ago after several defaults. This latest case involving Country Garden is attention-getting because real estate and development has been seen by investors as a way to help China's recovery post-pandemic. The global economy is losing one of its engines of growth. That's why everyone should care about what's happening to real estate. Real estate is the main drag right now on confidence levels, on demand, and on industrial productivity. We reached out to Country Garden. It didn't respond to our request for comment. As far as what's next, the government may change some of its policies to help the property market thrive. Mark Stewart, CNN, Tokyo. Well, meanwhile, in China's Hobei province, at least 29 people have died in flooding and heavy rains from Typhoon Doksuri, and there have been rare protests after authorities deliberately directed floodwaters towards people's homes. CNN's Ivan Watson has the story. A rare moment of defiance in China. Angry residents on the steps of a municipal government building in the city of Bajou. Their sign says, give me back my home. The flood was caused by flood water discharge, not by heavy rainfall. At some point, men with police shields dispersed the crowd. The incident took place after deadly floods caused by the heaviest rains to hit northeastern China in 140 years. A typhoon that killed dozens of people in and around the Chinese capital, Beijing, forcing the evacuation of more than a million people from their homes. Over the last two weeks, these three provinces all saw dramatic flooding. But we're learning that some communities weren't just damaged by a natural disaster. The small city of Bajou, where the protest took place, was deliberately flooded by authorities following a government disaster plan aimed at protecting bigger cities like Beijing and Tianjin. 
At 2 a.m. on August 1st, authorities activated a flood control plan, releasing water from dams into flood storage and detention zones. They then had to evacuate more than 800,000 people living in those zones, which quickly flooded. State TV showed the Communist Party chief of Hebei province touring the disaster area, instructing subordinates to reduce flooding pressure on Beijing and vowing to resolutely be the capital's moat. In the event of a crisis, experts say countries often plan to redirect rising water, but usually towards flood zones that are unpopulated. Seems like a planning problem. Um, Somebody uh, allowed development or overdevelopment in an area that was designated to be a flood control zone. Provincial governments thanked evacuees for their sacrifice, adding, history will record your contribution. That's cold comfort to people who've seen their homes and livelihoods destroyed for the greater good. Nearly all the factories in our area were seriously damaged. 99% of the factories have little hope of salvaging the losses. Under Chinese rules, people are entitled to compensation of 70% of the value of property submerged in flood control areas. Experts say planning for the next extreme weather disaster will only get harder. I think the entire world is scrambling to get prepared for the problems climate change is unfolding onto us. Which seems like an almost impossible challenge. Ivan Watson, CNN. Hong Kong. All right, up next, the Women's World Cup. The first two quarterfinal games are in the books. Find out which teams are advancing to the semifinals after the break. The assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protest that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome back to First Move, where there were some thrilling World Cup quarterfinals earlier Friday. Spain edged past the Netherlands in a 2-1 victory, reaching their first ever Women's World Cup semifinals. And five days after ousting the US team, Sweden took on Japan for a spot in the semifinals. Amanda Davis is in Auckland, New Zealand, with all the details. Amidst the shocks, surprises and unpredictability of this tournament so far, Japan had been the unflappable, unbeaten constant until they met Sweden, a side you suspect they won't want to be meeting again anytime soon. For the second major tournament in a row, Sweden are the team that have knocked out Japan at the quarter-final stage. Japan might have had the better of the support here at Eden Park, but it was Sweden who, from very early on, had the better of the action and the chances. And they deservedly went ahead just after 30 minutes, thanks to Amanda Ilsted. Not a bad haul from her, a defender, her fourth goal of the tournament so far. You wondered how Japan were going to cope, uh, going down behind in this tournament for the first time. And whatever their plan, 
when just five minutes after half time, Sweden scored a second from the penalty spot. They were always going to have a mountain to climb. But Japan, if nothing else, have known they are able to score goals at this tournament. And they pushed, they hit the crossbar, they hit the post, they scored one but couldn't get a second. So it is Sweden going through to the semi-finals for the fourth time in five knockout tournaments. I mean, watching Spain against the Netherlands? I mean, they've already knocked out USA, so come on, let's go all the way. Why not? Yeah. How do you react to that? We're going through the semis, so wow, I'm happy. <laughs> so what is it meant to be able to, to watch Japan here? Yeah, that's amazing. Great opportunity. We've been yeah coming to Eden Park. This is our third game. Do you think Sweden can win the World Cup? Um, yeah, if they try hard. So a disappointing end to a tournament that had offered so much for Japan. For Sweden and their fans, they will be back here on Tuesday to take on Spain, hoping to take a step closer to that first ever major piece of silverware that has eluded them for so long. Amanda Davis, CNN, Auckland, New Zealand. Well, men's football is back in the spotlight with a new season kicking off today in the English Premier League and the Saudi Pro League. The Saudi League has 18 clubs. Four of them are majority owned by the Saudi Public Investment Fund, one of the world's biggest sovereign wealth funds. And Saudi clubs are spending big money to sign players from across Europe. The SPL has spent more than 400 million euros in the summer transfer window. That's actually on par with investments made by top European leagues. The well, start of the SPL season has again stirred up accusations of sports washing, the attempt to use sport to improve a reputation tarnished by scandal or wrongdoing. Well, joining me now is Rory Smith. He's the chief soccer correspondent for The New York Times. Rory, great to see you. Thanks for being with us. Um, as I was laying out there, Rory, we know that Saudi Arabia have vast resources, seemingly no bottom line financially and are not it seems, motivated by profits. So there have been genuine concerns within football that Saudi Arabia are set to overtake Europe as the mecca for the sport. Are people right to be concerned about this? I think there's reasons for concern, but probably not that one immediately. I think what we've seen from the, from the Saudis this summer has been spectacular, at, at times jaw-dropping. They've, they've taken, I think, maybe more players than, than even they were anticipating. They... They set out in the spring to, to sign players towards the end of their contracts, early to mid-30s, to try and kind of give the, give the league a little bit of legitimacy. And they, they found pretty quickly that a far broader swathe of players were prepared to join them than they'd expected. They were getting yeses from players in their late 20s, very early 30s, players who you would expect to see maybe in the Premier League this weekend. I think for the time being, certainly, the presence of the Champions League means that Saudis see there is a limited ceiling on how far the Saudi League can grow. But we've seen in, in plenty of other sports that the Saudis tend to do things seriously once they set their minds to them. So I suspect we'll see this pattern continue in a few years' time, and that might change the landscape a little.
Yeah, uh, they're certainly not messing around. Um, one of the big concerns, I think, in football right now is rather more logistical. We heard Liverpool boss uh, Jurgen Klopp speaking about this last week, that the Saudi transfer window is currently open for three weeks later than the transfer window in Europe, which is leading to fears you know, that, that clubs could not replace players should Saudi uh, come poaching. I mean, how much do FIFA need to address that, do you think? Yeah, I think it would be helpful if there was a if there was a slightly more uniform transfer window around the world. It's it's something that has always been an issue in various because of football's global global kind of nature. You you have leagues that run it on on different schedules, so countries need transfer windows uh, that that function in different times. Personally, I'd close the European one before the start of the European season. I think that would make a lot more sense. <laughs> it might be the case is that the Saudi authorities have to kind of talk to UEFA a little bit to see if there's a way of streamlining it. But ultimately, I think for most of the Premier League clubs, once they have their squads finalised, they'll be pretty sure that the, the, the players won't want to move to Saudi. The, the ones that, that want to go will have gone already. Mm. So it's, it's a slight concern, I suppose, but it won't be something that feels particularly pressing once the season's really underway. Yeah. Now, listen, we hear the term sports washing so often with Saudi Arabia for good reason. You know, critics say they're attempting to sanitise their record, obviously wielding these huge sums of money as a, as a form of soft power. But it's curious, Rory, to me that we don't hear more objections from the sporting world themselves, from governing bodies, from leagues, from players. Is that because this is really all to do with money at the end of the day? Yeah, ultimately, I think I think if you're a, a European league and you, you address some of the concerns that that they will have, but it's not stopped any of them, any of the clubs selling the players they don't want to Saudi Arabia. They've welcomed the the injection of funds with open arms. They're really happy that they've got a market all of a sudden where they can place. I don't want to say overpaid players, but players that they no longer have a use for and that they need to free up their wages. They can sell them to Saudi Arabia. That's that's basically as far as the club's interest goes. I think there are. There are legitimate concerns maybe among the leagues in, in terms of what the Saudi project might do to, to imbalance the competitive landscape a little bit. But for the most part, football is very much a, a kind of, it's an, it's, a, it's an immediate business. It doesn't think too much in the future. It's not really capable of it. They, the, the vast majority of, of the authorities, the clubs, the, the executives, the people in charge of running the game will see Saudi Arabia as a source of money. And if that leads to problems, they can always think about them tomorrow. Yeah, and I think uh, that's what a lot of human rights uh, groups have a problem with here is that uh, there is not the focus on on the record and, and more so on the on the sport, as you say, um, moving forward. But so, Roy, what do you see as, as Saudi Arabia's ultimate goal here, not just in, in sporting terms, in particular with football, as we're talking about that, but in terms of economics as well, because some are saying, you know, this for them, of course, is not about sports washing. They would always say that it's about sort of um, an economic change, you know, moving a shift away from oil dependency with the sort of energy transition coming. I mean, how do you read this? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the that's the logic that the Saudis have, have kind of presented and I, and, and I think they believe it that, you know they they have said consistently that they have a problem in terms of obesity in Saudi Arabia in, in the young population they want to get more Saudi being active I think that's true I think the Saudi authorities genuinely feel that that will be a good thing for Saudi society um, I think they want to diversify the economy as part of the vision 2030 plan I think that is true they I spoke to people for a piece we wrote a few weeks ago and you know quite a lot of people said that it's not just the players that, that are the football industry but maybe you get you know, broadcasters setting up in Saudi Arabia, which leads to a, 
to a, to the arrival of, of media talent, and not just on screen, but but off it, of course. You know, the whole the whole expertise that as everyone at CNN knows goes into producing television. You need a lot of people who are qualified and talented, and the Saudis want to create a native industry there, and also maybe get people in to move to Saudi Arabia from Europe and the States and Australia. I think there's an element of, of bread and circuses that's that's a sort of eternal political philosophy. I don't think that, just as it comes from the ancient world, I don't think that means it's irrelevant. That, that, you know, Saudi Arabia has a really young population. It has a young population that is very passionate for football in particular and sport in general. And you have an autocratic regime that does not want that young population to become dissatisfied. So give them what they want. Give them a little bit of the glamour and the luster that you see in the Premier League and the Champions League. That makes perfect sense. I think those are all legitimate aims. I think they're sincere. I don't think anyone's in a position to say that Saudi Arabia should not be allowed to have a stronger domestic football league. There, yeah. There is an issue that everyone seems to be trying to address about government interference in sport, which is which FIFA does not allow. And yeah. At some point, that it's, might be a it's, problem. And it is, a, is that it comes... Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, it, it is to, a problem. to the fact that the Saudis are hoping to, to use this to... Yeah, to kind of to change their, their, their public image away from you know, the human rights abuses, the issues that we've seen, yeah. that is the, the collateral damage that they are using football to do that. And football has yeah. to ask itself whether it's okay with that. Football has to ask very stern questions of itself. And I think sports as a wider context too. Uh, Rory, thank you so much. I think you're coming for us from the World Cup tonight. Uh, thank you so much for being with us uh, from the New York Times there. And stay with us, more First Move coming up after this break. Now, when India announced a ban on exports of uh, on non-basmati white rice last month, there were fears it could trigger a global crisis. The news reportedly sent some Indian experts in the U.S. into panic buying mode. But American rice producers say the U.S. has enough to go round. CNN's Vedika Sood reports on the situation in India. Dozens of panic-stricken buyers scrambling to buy Indian rice in a store in Dallas. Just a day after India, the world's largest exporter of rice, imposed a ban on shipments exporting non-Basmati rice. The USA Rice Federation says there's, quote, enough U.S. rice to go around. But New Delhi's export restrictions have triggered fears of a global food crisis. India's rice supply has been hit hard after heavy rains devastated large regions where the staple is grown, crippling livelihoods. Last month, the Indian government said it was necessary to halt all exports of non-Basmati rice to calm domestic rising prices and ensure adequate supply at home. In a village in North India, third-generation farmer Satish Kumar sits by his paddy field that's been submerged for over a month. It's destroyed his newly planted seedlings. Farming is Kumar's only source of income. He's taken loans to recultivate his land. I've suffered huge losses, he tells me. Now nothing can be grown on this land till November. Here, the rice export ban is a double whammy. It's going to have an adverse impact on us, Kumar tells me. We won't get a higher rate if rice isn't exported. The floods were a death blow to us farmers. This ban will finish us, he says. The South Asian nation accounts for more than 40% of world rice exports globally. In Delhi's rice export hub, traders face uncertainty as rice stocks are piling up. The export ban has left traders with huge amounts of stock. 
We now have to find new buyers in the domestic market, trader Roop Karan tells me. Many of the world's poorest countries depend on imports of Indian rice. Economists warn a prolonged ban could leave the world's most vulnerable people with even less to eat. Global food prices have soared to a near 12-year high, according to the United Nations Food Agency. New Delhi's ban comes in the week after Russia's targeting of Ukrainian grain shipments, driving up grain prices across the world. Poor countries, food importing countries, poor people in West Africa, they are at the highest risk. It is about does the food stay affordable for the poorest of the poor in countries around the world. Almost 40% of the people on earth rely on rice for sustenance. A shortfall in Indian rice could leave millions hungry. Bedika Sood, CNN, New Delhi. And that is it for this edition of the show. I'm Christina McFarlane. Stay with us. Connect the World is coming up after the break. Have a great weekend. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.